Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Missy. Great job. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter number 6 this morning? Luke chapter number 6 and verse number 12. Jesus went into the hill country with his disciples, and during this night of prayer, he was directed by the Father to disciple an inner group of men, the apostles, who would then become those who would disciple others, and that's reach out into the multitudes who followed Jesus. These 12 individuals were chosen by the Lord from the larger group of disciples who were continuously following the Lord. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is the selection of the apostles. It says in verse number 12, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain and to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And at daybreak, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, also called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So soon after the confrontation that Jesus has had in the synagogue in Galilee with the Pharisees, he withdrew to a select and secluded place to pray. There Jesus spent all night in prayer, making one of the most important decisions of his ministry. Sometime during the night, the Father placed 12 names on his heart. There are four lists of the apostles given in Scripture. We find it here. We also find it in Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 3 and Acts chapter 1. These lists vary somewhat in the order in which they are presented. But Peter is always first. Judas is always last. Simon, soon to be known as Peter, the outspoken brother of Andrew, is selected. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder by their friends because of their tempers. Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. Matthew, the tax collector, formerly known as Levi. Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas the brother of James, also called Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot. None of them volunteered. They were all drafted by Jesus. And what an interesting group of men it was. They certainly illustrate the principle that's declared by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth, where he says, after the flesh, not many mighty, not Many noble are called. This should be an encouragement to us. If God could use these men as his disciples, then he can use us. Ironically, the only one that would have made sense to the people of that day was Judas Iscariot. All except Judas were Galileans. They were country boys. Four were fishermen. One was a hated tax collector. None of them was famous or rich or noble. Not one of them was a scribe or a priest or an elder or a ruler of the people. 
They were, as their detractors labeled them, unschooled, ordinary men, and all were poor. They were ordinary men, and their personalities were very different. Yet Jesus called them to be with him, to learn from him, and to go out and to represent him. They seem to have little in common, except that they are bound together by a relationship to Jesus. So it was that Jesus came down to a level place, and there he selected and set apart the twelve. He ministered to the sick, and he preached perhaps the greatest sermon of all time. Secondly, we see this morning the sermon on the plain. It says in verse 17, and it came, and it came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, all Judah and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with evil spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went from him and healed them all. And then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, because of the similarities between the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, some believe this is Luke's version of that same sermon. If so, then Luke's version is much shorter, just 30 verses as compared with 107 verses in the Gospel of Matthew. Luke's account gives us four Beatitudes, whereas Luke's gives us nine But because of the numerous differences, it is also possible to see Luke's account is a separate sermon preached on a different occasion with a different purposes. Both versions are obviously summaries of larger sermons. There are differences, but they both begin with a set of beatitudes and they both end with the parable of the two houses. The sermon is introduced in verse 20 with the phrase, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, clearly indicating that what he has to say is specifically directed to his followers. He also uses the second person plural as he addresses the disciples, Blessed are you. And if you have an old King James Version, it uses the word ye. Ye is a plural you, meaning you, all of you. And here he gives a profile of what a disciple is to be. Those who follow Jesus must operate under a set of values that are different from and sometimes even opposite of what the world lives by. The Lord explained the blessed life was not found in getting or from doing but from being. The first thing that he talks about are the blessings. These verses are sometimes called the beatitude from the the Latin word meaning blessing. But blessed here means more than just happiness. It indicates the approval and favor of God. The four descriptions of the righteous are not four separate groups but four parts of a portrait describing those who are blessed. 
First of all, he talks about the blessing of poverty. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying that there is anything innately righteous about being poor, nor is there anything automatically evil about being rich. The writer of Proverbs said that poverty can either be a curse or a blessing. He says in Proverbs chapter 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food you prescribe for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Jesus taught that when there was a choice to be made between money and God, God must always come first. In Matthew chapter 6, He says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money. Money is not evil, unless it takes the place that only God should have. In the story of the rich young ruler that's found in Luke chapter 18, we discovered that his money meant too much to him. When forced with a choice of following Jesus or being rich, he chose to be rich. The kingdom that Jesus speaks of here is both a present reality and a future promise. For he says, for yours is the kingdom of God. To these disciples and to us today, he is saying that as Christians, we are at the present living under the lordship of of Christ as we obey his commands and we seek to live a life pleasing to him. But the kingdom is also a future promise. Speaking of the time that Jesus will return and establish his rule and reign on the earth. Secondly, it talks about the blessing of hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. The Old Testament does not directly equate blessing with physical hunger, but it does commend a different kind of hunger, spiritual hunger. The psalmist declares, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then again in chapter 63, the psalmist says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. David's imagery is passionate. His soul thirsts. He is spiritually longing like a bodily ache for a drink of water. Jesus blesses spiritual hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied with his coming. Christ became the source of true satisfaction. There's also the blessing of sorrow in verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, this statement was not an attack on laughter. Jesus doesn't mean, blessed are you grim and cheerless Christians. Actually, humor and laughter are good and necessary for the believer. Solomon said, a cheerful heart is good medicine. 
What Jesus is attacking is the superficial, shallow humor that characterizes the world. The inability to weep at the right things and the ability to laugh at the wrong things. We are called to weep over lost souls, people who will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We're to weep over the world's misery, over injustice that falls to so many helpless peoples. We are to weep over the unfairness that victimizes the weak. We're to weep over those who laugh now, but who, unless they turn to Christ, will suffer an eternity apart from God. And lastly, he talks about the blessing of rejection. Blessed are you, in verse 22 he says, when men hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. The sad truth is that many Christians are persecuted not for the sake of their faith, but simply because they are unpleasant. They are rude, they are insensitive, they are thoughtless and piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they are thought to be proud and judgmental. Peter warned in 1 Peter 4, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part he is blasphemed, but in your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. There is no inherent merit in being rejected or persecuted, but only in being thus treated on the account of the service of Christ. But the truth is that everyone who truly follows Jesus will undergo persecution. John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul advised Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he again warned the Thessalonians in saying that no one should be taken by these afflictions For you yourselves know that we are appointed for this. For in fact, we are told you before that when we were with you, that those who would would suffer that tribulation would come. And just as it has happened, as you know. Well, there first of all were the blessings, and now there are the woes. The Lord turned to those in the crowd who were living only for the blessings of this earth. And he gave them the flip side of the coin. For each of the blessings, there is a corresponding woe. And again, with the woes, he's not describing four different individuals or groups, but rather four parts of a single portrait of those who stand in opposition to God's kingdom. The four four woes all share a common truth. Beware of what you take from this life. For it will cost you. 
The point seems to be that life involves choices. We must choose what in this life we will pursue. And every choice has both benefits and a price to pay. First of all, he says, woe to those who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Now the word woe is an expression of regret, of dismay and compassion. It is not a threat. Jesus is expressing disappointment as well as a condemnation of the action and attitudes of those who would not accept the kingdom that he offered. This is how modern translation called the message translates this verse. It is trouble ahead for those of you who think you have it made. What you have is all you'll ever get. Psalm 34 and verse 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. Another translation puts it this way, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Not only woe to those who are rich, but woe to those who are full. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Again, a modern translation of that verse would be, it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for very long. Then he says, woe to those of you who laugh. Again, it's not a condemnation of laughter. It's a condemnation of laughter that indicates a satisfaction and contentment with the things of this world. Another way to translate that is it's trouble ahead if you think life is all fun and games. There's suffering to be met and you're going to meet it. And the final woe is woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Another way of saying that there's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others. Saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Your task is to be true, not popular. This last woe is beware when all men speak well of you. And it should be recognized that this should usually not happen to a Christian. Apart from a sacrifice of principle. A person who is persecuted because of Christ is the only one who is truly living. If we were to ask and answer the question this morning, what does it mean to be his disciple? Here's what it means. His disciples do not compromise with a fallen culture. Their belief system is firmly rooted in Christ and his divine word. They believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world and that he is the only way to the Father. They stand true in their relationships and in their public conduct. Whatever wealth they have does not come through ethical compromise or the adoption of everyone else's doing it. They do not love money. 
They do not hold their earnings tightly, for they have been given everything that they have by Jesus. They know he is their only hope, and he is their life. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the day that you've given us to gather here in your house. Thank you for those who are here today, and we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to their hearts. It may be that there's someone here that doesn't know you as their personal Savior. Maybe they recognize that this morning. Help them to also realize that right here, right now, they can change that by turning to you and in repentance, repenting of their sins, and in faith, asking to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for them on the cross of Calvary. We pray for your blessings on each one that's gathered here, whatever their need may be. Some are here today that have been beaten down by the world and they need a fresh touch from you. There are others who are suffering in ways that no one around them are aware of. But we are aware today, Lord, that you're able to meet every need that we have. And so, Lord, we ask that you bless in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.